Hello, Tokus. Hey, how's it going, Tom? Very good, very good. So, are you a first-time listener, or have you heard previous Biota Lives? I've, never, I've, I've uh, joined in chats a few times, but I always get here a bit late. Um, I've, I've listened to all the podcasts, though. It's, Terrific. Um, yeah, I found it quite informative. Great. So you haven't actually come from the H Plus article. You have a, a background legacy of listening to Biota Lives. Sure, sure. Um, um, personally, I'm, I'm right into robotics and, and AI and stuff, and basically uh, I'm trying to learn... All, all the facets of, of, of computer science and artificial life is, I guess, one of the major facets and, and it's a big future of, of com- computation and stuff. So. Similarly, the artificial life community has a lot to learn from the robotics community. I mean, in, in the US and the UK, there are like two hobbyist robotics magazines. So it's been able to have a whole lot of cottage and even quite, you know, medium-sized company industries that actively supply the robotics hobbyist community. And I think in terms of just public perception, there's a greater degree of connection between the robotics community and the artificial life community, and these are these are things we can really learn from within the artificial life community. Sure, sure. Like, um, well, myself, I'm, I'm coming in from a hobbyist angle, and um, I, I want to enter into academia one day, but um, I'm finding the internet's just such a great tool. You know, you can diversify all, all your skills and really focus on what you want to learn. And, and for instance, like you're saying with robotics, it's it's getting all the research money and, and, and they're getting that advertising on the television because they've got cool robots to show off. So soon there'll be some artificial life that, that will get the, the, the news as well, you know? For instance, Evo Grid as it grows. I think uh, the science fiction community has done wonderful things for the robotics community as well. And this is something which I've tried to reach out to as well. I know there are a few science fiction uh, authors that plug into the artificial life community. I mean, for example... Jeffrey Ventrella's brother, Michael Ventrella, I think is his name, is a science fiction author, and certainly there's been a historical legacy associated with early artificial life developers uh, reaching out to science fiction authors. But particularly with regards to this idea of hard artificial life, even though it's almost a kind of passe idea, but, um, you know, Rodney Brooks and the early stuff at uh, MIT, the ideas that, you know, artificial life robots are really where artificial life is is engaged currently in terms of a popular perception. I mean, I think there is some kind of crossover. In terms of your own hobbyist robotics, have you thought about combining that with artificial life in some way? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm, I'm only really... Uh, my experience with software is really quite basic, but uh, at the moment um, I'm just learning all about the, the fundamentals of robotics, you know, feedback control, kinematics, uh, all those sorts of things. Once, once I've developed those... Skills. I want to include uh, genetic algorithms and, and, and even artificial life elements into the robots as, as for instance, it could be part of their, their, their brain. So you could use um, artificial life to, to help tune neural networks, for instance. There are a number of, of great vans. And you mentioned that you'd listen to the EvoGrid discussion. I mean, if you've listened to all the BioLives, you've listened to the EvoGrid discussion from, from its very start through to the present day. I mean, what's your own particular view of the EvoGrid? I'm a big optimist, and and I believe that it's it's a big, big, grand scheme, and it could it could get all the people from cross disciplines together and and do some serious science. And look, I understand. I can't remember who it was commenting on on the the actual energy usage of of such a big project, but I mean, we've already got these massive supercomputers. So if we can get a grid system and use these when they're not being run. Let's let's get it there. There's all these supercomputers and all these universities, and you know they can jump on. I think that 
there could be some really uh, interesting discoveries made through the EvoGrid. Could be to do with evolution of prebiotic life, evolution of of uh, complex life, com- a lot of things really. Like it's, it's it's got the potential to be a major scientific work of this century, but um, it's going to take a lot of work and. Um, a lot of research money come come into it eventually. This is additional news which I haven't actually put out in the podcast yet, but I, from the discussions, probably the past two or three biotalyzed, maybe three or four even, I mean, really when Peter Newman started uh, coming on the podcast, I've um, been developing my own kind of vision of the Evo Grid in software, and I released it on SourceForge um, this week, maybe last week now, and I call it chemical automata, and it's this idea that you can generate cellular automata-like forms through using chemical reactions. And I have this model of quantized space where there are four different kinds of atomic gases, two gaseous compounds and two liquid compounds. And the cellular automata, as you'd see in, you know, I mean, two-dimensional cellular automata, they exist in three dimensions. And they also exist in three dimensions purely through the chemistry. The rules that would be traditionally written in cellular automata are actually written in the chemical equations. And this is something that I'd put out to Bruce Damer pretty early on, but also particularly talking to Peter Newman as he's started working with ball and stick and then trying to move ball and stick chemical simulation models into quantum mechanics, that really there must be something that's kind of simpler and needs to be distilled in, a, in an easier to understand simulation. Ironically, even doing it this way, the computation associated with multiple chemical equations and the kind of non-linear element to these equations operating is quite computationally intensive. So as you say, there is really a need for a movement into the kind of cluster computing and end-core processor community with regards to things like the EvoCrid. My sense really was that there almost needed to be a competitive element. I mean, I have a lot of respect for what Bruce and Peter Newman are are doing, but if we were to have a kind of true open-source dialogue associated with the EvoCrid, it's not that there are necessarily competing simulations in the space, but I certainly think there's a kind of fluidity of ideas which isn't actively being represented in in Bruce's kind of constant evolution of discussion. So, I mean, that's my own thinking, but I think also it's an opportunity for the community and for people such as yourself and other folks that are listening in to start doing their own. I mean, as as you have a clear vision associated with the EvoGrid, a number of other people have their own particular visions. And it's fascinating, particularly, obviously, I get a lot of correspondence, email correspondence associated with the EvoGrid, you know, when I'm not doing Bios Live. And the fascinating thing is that all the correspondents have their own particular vision. I, I met Dick Gordon, who's appeared on, on previous BioLives, the embryologist, came through town probably three or four weeks ago, and I met with him and his wife, went out to lunch. But he has his own particular vision of the Evo Grid associated with four or five decades worth of work that he's done with regards to embryo evolution and all the real world problems. I mean, he's He's someone oh. who's x-rayed axolotls, you know, and these kind of things in order to work out how they regrow limbs. I mean, he's very much in the applied fashion. And what I think is interesting, and this, the EvoGrid is really a metaphor for all of artificial life in this regard, is that people hear about the EvoGrid, and as you do, they kind of create their own perception of what they want it to be. And you're right, there is almost this kind of utopian or anti-utopian vision associated with the various practitioners. The fellow you referred to was Gerald de Jung, and ironically, I mean, Gerald has, has had this narrative associated with all the energy that we're wasting developing this artificial life since he heard. I was interviewed on Floss Weekly 
probably a year, maybe a year and a half ago now, and I mentioned that uh, when Apple first started using Noble Ape, it made their um, processors run like a hairdryer, basically, a G5 <laughs> computer, and he, he has harked on that. So it's a reoccurring theme in Gerald's discussion that what we're really doing is, is wasting a lot of energy with artificial life. But in terms of, I mean, you've listened to Biota Live. Have you actually, like, downloaded artificial life software and started tinkering with the yeah, software? Yeah, I've tinkered with a few things. I've, I've had a look at your software. I haven't got in and, and um, played played with the... Uh, uh, the builds and 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 or anything like that. I'm I'm just more at the moment. I'm trying to soak up as much information on on all the different disciplines associated with computer science and engineering and robotics. So I'm sort of going at one step at a time. But I, I think when I start dabbling in it, uh, I will understand the processes and it will it will be quite enjoyable. I think. Yeah. In terms of an artificial life developer, what can we actually do better for people such as yourself? It, that's a hard question because I think uh, getting the information out there and uh, basically having a toolkit like like uh, a lot of the software I've seen that you could ha have the graphical interface is great. But for instance, with uh, reusing the, the modules, like basically having libraries of, for genetic algorithms that you could then port into other software easily that you could then build artificial life programs using these modules would be an interesting thing to have. And that's sort of what I see with the EvoGrid maybe um, and, and talking about this XML phenotypes and stuff like that. You, you could have um, uh, sort of like a common, common language that can be shared on different processes. Uh, different um, programs could then take that information and, and, and use it in different ways. So... That's, that's one idea. Certainly. And have you played with Brevet or, or Framsticks at all? No, no, I haven't. I think, I mean, both Brevet and Framsticks are used in, in education, and uh, particularly tertiary education, typically university students. So I, I think the things with Brevet could almost be used with high school students as well. I'm not sure whether um, John Klein's done that. But these are tools which, um, unlike what you're describing, are in fact whole graphical environments where you can... Um, you know, you have an existing suite of libraries, including some genetic algorithm components, and you can create everything from uh, Carl Sims' original blockies to kind of battling robots to two-dimensional cellular automata. And I think it's a yep. kind of learning tool to kind of teach the basics of artificial life, but also give a degree of depth. They do offer something. I'm not sure how I actively maintain Framsticks as currently, but I know, I mean, John Klein has had a, a child recently. In fact, a number of people in the artificial life community <laughs> having children and their artificial life development is slowing down accordingly. But I think, sure. um, I think you're exactly right. I mean, there, ne there needs to be some kind of toolkit associated. In terms of the availability of online information, this has been a, a, an occasional topic on BioLive. Do you feel, I mean, have you gotten any of the information from regular physical books or are you all, is all the uh, stuff that you're getting from the internet? Yeah, there's a few books I've eyed off, but they're all like a hundred and something dollars each. So. Yeah, no, <laughs> um, that's a no, real problem. It is. But what, what I've found is um, there's a lot of information out there for people who are doing um, music with, with genetic algorithms. And there's a lot of code out there for that, um, which is interesting. The, the music side of things is um, an area which we've really... I mean, I've wanted to get more of it into Bios Live, particularly because, I mean, Jeffrey Ventrella does a lot of music-related stuff, and John Klein, a number of these names who 
we typically talk about non-music-related uh, artificial life software with, but they all have artificial life music programs as well and, and produce quite amazing stuff with that. I think in terms of the visualisation, there's something that people really get with, uh, with artificial life music, particularly because a lot of it combines animations and, and interaction components similar to you know, more well, non-music artificial life. But um, you're right. I mean, in terms of the visualization and the tuning and the sense that people get, um, it's, it's a very rich environment. And what you're dealing with here is really just a different kind of perception that some people are very, you know, algorithmically oriented. They like to read formulae. Some people like to see visualization. And music just gives a different element to kind of understanding what artificial life is about. Yeah, definitely. And um, for instance, with, with uh, artificial intelligence, a lot of uh, research has been done and built on using music as a basis because it's a great tool. You know, we, we, we already have instruments that can like, connect to a computer. So, you, you know, you run the information and you've got your parameters and there you go. So back to the computation things, uh, I've noticed the, with, with the uh, power consumption of chips is coming down and there's, there's actually some really new interesting chips that are coming out which have low power consumption and um, multiple processes, which is something that artificial life could take advantage of. Very much so. I mean, I think a lot of that is actually, I mean, my own experience of working with Intel, for example, I mean, that's what they've used Noble 8 for in terms of um, both increasing processor power, but also decreasing um, processor consumption, to use a kind of mixed metaphor. The, the knowledge associated with, as you say, this, the, the processes and these kind of things, I mean, Gerald de Jung and I and Eric Burton and these kind of folk, when we have this conversation, there are a group of artificial life developers that still enjoy developing in, in high-level languages uh, and not really using the underlying power of the processor. And I'm certainly in the, you know, I want to get down to as close as the silicon as possible in order to exploit the rich computational power. But in terms, of, in terms of the robotics community, I mean, the kind of chips that you deal with in the robotics community, I mean, how does this kind of compare to the discussions that we have on BioLive in terms of processing power? Well, um, it depends on the, the, uh, the, the task. But in, in relation to, um, for instance, um, the high-end stuff is using uh, networks, most, most commonly neural-type neural networks, to, to make the decision processes, you know, so you can train them. And then you still have your, your logic systems built around that. So the logic systems don't necessarily have to ha be specialised, but they basically use a lot of uh, uh, specialised chips, you know, like floating point units and stuff like that to, to calculate. And then they can then build these re reduced uh, reductive models of, of uh, neural nets, which is basically, from what I understand, is the core of mo most, most of the research in, in robotics at the moment. You know, I think it's interesting because certainly as artificial life developers, I mean, you know, I talk to people like Scott Schaefer, for example, and he he develops artificial life very much in the view that these black box com components exist in the artificial life community as well. I mean, he, he always talks about kind of dropping, you know, no-blake brains into whatever he develops and seeing, you know, what direction that pushes things. And I think it's an interesting discussion because, I mean, you talk about genetic algorithms in some regard, but there's... There's a kind of competing movement, and this is interesting when you have Gerald Jung and, and me on a, a podcast together because we kind of represent both ends of the spectrum. I think there are elements of simulated intelligence that you could never get solely from genetic algorithms, and it really is kind of describing it in this kind of black box component element where you do need your, your low-level systems in some regard, your kind of 
um, sensory and obfuscatory systems. And then in addition to this, you may have something that kind of models the central nervous system and maybe you have your genetic algorithm components, but they all they all fit together. And I think this is the great metaphor between artificial life and robotics is that, you know, these kind of component um, uh, element parts are, are very much part of the artificial life narrative as they are the, the robotics narrative. In terms of, I mean, in terms of the kind of ho hobbyist robotics community, what do you think the artificial life, the hobbyist artificial life community can learn from the hobbyist robotics community? Well, um thing I... I think you could learn uh, as a community could be um, you could earn extra money by producing your own software. Um, for instance, the iPhone's a great market. With with the hobbyist robotics, if people want to make a bit of money, they take their design and, and they make a kit themselves often. They make their own company um, and that, that can be like a little side project for them, but they can actually build on that. And, and, and it's amazing how that's that's what this, Sort of collective share of knowledge that, that that that's happening at the moment with the internet, um, going through the the ability to stream video and people can just share information, large data sets, all these sorts of things. That's all aiding. So with, with the robotics community, that's that's basically your your best best thing is to is to start a little business and make a product, and that gets it out there. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I I think there's there's certainly a lot of discourse in the artificial life community associated with selling things and particularly the open source movement. And my own sense has been it's, it's very easy to sell atoms and it's a lot harder to sell electrons. And particularly when the electrons are kind of attached to ideas which seem relatively fragile anyway. I mean, uh, Steve, are you familiar with Steve Grand's work at all? No, I'm... Um I'm afraid I'm not. Well, I mean, Steve Grant kind of straddles both the robotics community and also the artificial life community. He wrote the Creatures game in, I guess, the mid-90s, and then they came out with Creatures 2 and Creatures 3, um, although Steve was less associated with that. Okay. But, okay, yeah. but Steve's current passion, and really it's been his passion since he um, kind of moved himself away from the Creatures development, has been robotics. Uh, and, you know, this is what he's worked on for, well, roughly a decade now, I guess. But uh, Steve's view has always been very much against open source, although he's a solitary developer. He's someone who spends a long period of time kind of in the complete isolation tinkering and then produces this thing which, um, in the case of his recent successes, have been books on his robotics work and earlier on his artificial life development. Oh, and so he very much lives in this kind of closed source reality. There's a lot of the stuff that Steve does that never sees the light of day. And this has always been my frustration that he'll spend, as he has, you know, a couple of years working on a game, which is a beautifully visualized and conceived game, which then dies. It doesn't see the light of day. It's not published. But also, you know, we get to see a few screenshots and get to hear him kind of wax lyrically about it, but it doesn't exist. And I think the concerned with the kind of core practitioners of artificial life, the developers and the hobbyists who come on by it live on a regular basis, is that the ideas that we develop true go into things like books. I mean, this is certainly something that the artificial life community has done, although, as you've highlighted, we can't seem to get books out there under about $100. <laughs> In terms of the actual raw ideas, we've been very much caught up in the open source movement, which is all about, in theory, selling your, your software services for money or some narrative associated with that, although I do all my software services for, for nothing. I mean, in terms of street cred, in terms of my uh, 
artificial life development. You know, I work with Apple and Intel, but, uh, you know, they don't pay me for that work. It's just something I do as a kind of intellectual pursuit in some regard. So I think the artificial life community, I, I agree with you. I think the successes in the robotics community, particularly the ho hobbyist robotics community, are all based in this idea of selling things and creating small companies which then advertise in small magazines, which then get sold on small newsstands, which basically maintain the community. And it's a very beautiful model in the robotics community. The problem with the artificial life community is that we have no atoms yet in any real sense. I mean, we could start, as you say, creating... I don't know, components that could go into robots. I mean, that is that is a possibility. But, definitely, definitely. but our kind of intellectual, you know, our intellectual sphere and contains ideas which are probably considerably more leftist in some regard, although really that has no meaning in kind of contemporary society, but certainly considerably more leftist than the robotics community. And I think this idea of the hobbyist within the artificial life community can certainly learn from the hobbyist in the robotics community as well. Uh, so if you, as, as you come into you know, robotics and artificial life, as you start studying all this kind of stuff, I mean, is your dream to end up creating a small company that develops some aspect of robotics? I mean, is this your, your hope? Definitely. Um, I've, I mean, I've, I already have uh, my own business like basically I'm, I'm an artist of my main field of study I've studied ceramics and um, sculpting molding painting drawing all these things bit of 3d animation but all the whole time you know I was destined to be an engineer my, my goal is to um, own my own business where I've got a massive warehouse where we've got all the latest equipment making whatever we want to do you know but it's, it's all with an ethical positive obviously goal you know Certainly, uh, but but that's my my dream is to um, it's it's almost then I'd have time to be able to um, merge merge the art and the robotics together. So you have functional robots that, for instance, if it's if it's in a um, a, a human interaction situation, it'd look good, it'd talk the right way, for instance, or and it would serve a purpose that is meaningful. So there's all these sort of requirements I have for what sort of research I want to get into. But the problem with me is I, I want to do everything, you know. I want to, I want to design robots for all different um, areas, you know. As, but again, like you say, you, you're saying um, the, to which side uh, most, hob uh, not necessarily hobbyists, the community as a general, like uh, with robotics, there, it is a little bit more conservative in, in a way. Um, but that's, I guess, because they're, they're going for a lot more in, in the research field um, they have to be, you know, a little bit tighter on things. I, I've, I've almost finished that, that P.W. Singer book you were talking about a few weeks ago, and it's really quite scary, the level of, um, of development of, of robotics that's, that's going to be going into areas, for instance, such as warfare, which is, is really the wrong direction. I mean, humanities, we're on that slippery slope right at the moment, and the thing is, is that there is a lot of ethical roboticists out there, is what I... I like to uh, think about, and see, I'm basically an optimist in that, in that way. Certainly, certainly. But it is interesting, this whole notion of closed versus open, and the mentalities that get associated with closed, just as, as well as the you know, mentalities that get associated with open. I mean, when, when Dick Gordon was here, and I don't talk about this on Bio Live because, you know, it's typically private conversation or things like that. We went through 
probably a dozen people in the artificial life community in terms of what they do as their day jobs. Because we never actually talk about what we do as our day jobs, but we all, you know, we all make money doing other things other than artificial life. And the irony is that if you were to pay a number of us what we earn in our day jobs, we, we you know, you could never do it. And, and, you know, you could never do it. I mean, from the money that's coming into even the concepts associated with artificial life currently, although in, you know, pharmaceutical companies and these kind of things, I mean, there is potential and certainly software development, these kind of things, I mean, there is potential. But this idea of um, almost closing components of your development in order to sell them or make them commercial products is a very interesting model. And it's something that I wanted to have Steve Grand on to to discuss specifically because he was very successful, as, as you say. He, I mean, he started out, you know, just in, in, a, in a house, basically being a house husband and tinkering away kind of part-time on his artificial life developments, writing educational software, and then eventually this game. But I think there is a potential for that momentum. And the, the real trick is working out how to kind of be a part of a community because the historical legacy associated with the artificial life community, there are a number of names who no longer participate in the artificial life community. And the analysis that some of us give is that these were people who were ultimately paid to develop artificial life. And when they stopped getting paid to develop artificial life, they lost an interest in it. Yeah. Um, and I think the robotics obvious community, because as you say, it starts kind of a small fledgling level, maybe, you know, after hours or these kind of things and work on, you know, work on the components of uh, a broader robot that people may purchase from. I mean, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of wisdom in that idea. But the real difficulty, I think, particularly associated with the artificial life community in contrast to the robotics community is there are far, I get the sense that there are far fewer practitioners in the artificial life community than there are in the robotics community. And certainly, when you look at um, how it's taught at universities, uh, whilst there are schools of, of artificial life or um, departments of artificial life coming out of schools of informatics, robotics is considerably more robust in the kind of engineering communities that come out of academia. Definitely. So, I mean, maybe it's a longer-term problem. What's your own thinking with regards to these kind of things? Just while I've got it in my head, I've, I just had a few responses to back... Uh, you're talking about uh, Steve and how he was tinkering away on his own. That's, there's a lot of analogues with that, with uh, a lot of research. For instance, with uh, string theory, there's a lot of mathematicians off working on their own. So, um, you know, and, and that goes then back to the open source movement and then how can you then make money off it. It's all a very complex issue. But um, I think that you could have a, a similar sort of thing like with Red Hat or something like that where you've got uh, people pay money to people like yourself to actually work and keep keep the code running, so that it's it's a, it's it's an open source environment. But there are still people making money in, in and getting paid the right amount. To give an application of my current interaction with Intel to talk to that, I mean, I think what interests me with regards to my interaction with Intel is probably every two years they contact me and they say we have you know one or two new technologies that we want to either use Noble to highlight or integrate in Noble or these kind of things. And typically it's not stuff that I continue on with the Noble development. I have this directory called Contrib, which I put all the contributions from Apple and Intel, but only a very small amount of that actually goes into the practical you know, running of Noble so it is always really secondary. The thing that I find fascinating with Intel in particular is, I mean, I'm, I'm, my day job is software engineering. I'm a software engineer, so I know what software engineering is. And they invest probably between two and three person month of 
software engineering time into Noble Ape in order to do these things. So I think the problem, the problem with the method where if, if they were to hire me, for example, I would have between two or three months of work every two years to do these kind of things. And there is some kind of critical mass associated with the artificial life community. I'm going up to the Bay Area in September to talk about this specifically associated with coaxing people that are doing some aspect of artificial life development in industry. I'm not sure if you remember Ed Salford, but he came on a couple of bio lives last year. Ed works at Eli Lilly, and the stuff that they're using artificial life for at Eli Lilly is to optimize their, um, their research fundamentally to look at chemical compounds and see whether they're worthy of doing research on prior to the academics and the, the internals that Lily ever seeing the chemistry. So rather than what you think, you know, using artificial life in pharmaceuticals would be, it's a very specific use of artificial life. However, they're using it at Lily. And I think there are, you know, there are probably tens of companies out there of a similar size to Lily that may be using components of artificial life. But the real, we, we've got to coax them. We've got to get a sense of where they are, what they're doing and what they need. And no one's really done that analysis yet. It's certainly what I put to Mark Bordeaux uh, when he was on that the International Society for Artificial Life should start doing that so they can actually have like real industry conferences as opposed to academic conferences. In, in the kind of big picture sense of things, does this make sense to you and do you have any kind of feedback on that kind of stuff? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, artificial life community has got a lot to, to add to efficiencies in every form of industry and um, power generation, and um, networks, all these sorts of things, they, they can use these, uh, I guess, more formally known in, in, as bio-inspired computing in, in a way. What they talk about in, with robotics, it's, it's known as bio-inspired. And, and in that way, you, you can have your critical systems and have these active agents going around tuning the controls and, and, and keeping the system optimised and all that sort of stuff. Taking that and basically, the thing is, I think there's a similar sort of divide with people who, who study informatics and then they go off and then they, they're, they're, they're working for some big company and they sort of can't really be in the hobbyist community because they're working for this big company that they're working on projects that could be confidential or some stuff like that. So that there is that divide and, uh, and that same divide is, is in robotics as well. And as we kind of come to the end of this, uh, this Biota Live, if people are interested in getting in contact with you, are you active on, I mean, are you on the Biota Conversations mailing list or the EvoGrid mailing list? Yeah, I'm on the EvoGrid mailing list. My, my name's actually Luke. It's Tolkis is like a screen name, but uh, yeah, I'm just starting to get a bit, bit more active. I'm, I'm hoping that Bruce opens up the wiki sometime so we can start putting in uh, information for, for, for the Evo grid. And also, I'll, I'll jump onto the uh, Biota wiki and all, and all that. So yeah, I want to get more, more active in, in the community, yeah. And I mean, I, I, I agree with you completely. I think the Evo grid wiki, in fact, the Biota wiki as well, really need people such as yourself to kind of move it in their own direction. I'm, I'm not sure, I mean, you, you probably heard... At the intro to this podcast, I was talking about the Biota website because we're in the process of moving it, or at least getting infrastructure ready for a move. And the fascinating thing about the Biota website that most people don't see is the number of Bruce's writings and other you know, folks in the artificial life and avatar community that have written on pages on the Biota site that are almost impossible to find. The only way that they're you know, still referenced and still being used is because academics 10 years ago started using them to teach undergraduate courses and continue to maintain the links up until the present day. And I think the wiki could actively do that with regards to both the EvoGrid communities but also the Biota community. And, I mean, I think your, your, your background and your interest in the, the you know, 
the time you are in your life in terms of formulating your own company and these kind of things. I mean, these are all critical things that the EvoGrid development and the EvoGrid wiki could really, uh, really benefit from. Definitely. So, so, Luke, I mean, I'd like to thank you for, for participating in this impromptu by live. Do you have any do you have any questions, any shout-outs, anything um, you want to leave the community with? Well, I've got, uh, got an idea for a future uh, podcast where you discuss how artificial life can help uh, virtual worlds and how um, things like the XML phenotype could be used in a way to dis- describe general information. So, for instance, um, for simulating uh, a human environment uh, you could use the same technology. Um, how uh, basically how artificial life can can aid virtual worlds development, and uh, also if anyone's interested in starting a grey thumb, I'm in Brisbane area. Just get in contact through grey thumb website or something like that. There's the international mailing list, and I'm on that for the grey thumb. Certainly, I've been contacted through the week actually from people. Uh in Canada as well, and the Alberta area, so I probably should send a shout-out to them too. And if folks are interested, I mean, contact me, tom at noble8.com, and certainly, I mean, if you're on the EvoGrid mailing list, Luke, I know how to reach you, and I can I can put people together. There's um, an artificial life conference, actually probably going to be the best artificial life conference this year uh, in Australia, um, ACAL at, at Monash in December, it's actually, I think it's a bit too expensive. I'm a bit, as you, as you say, I think the books and the conferences, you know, are just way overpriced for a hobbyist community. And this is, you know, why I keep putting Bio to Live out to try and send the message out to publishers and conference uh, conference creators that the prices need to start coming down. I think, it's, I heard it was $500, but I could be completely wrong with regards to that. Uh, that could be travel that people have added on to the cost of attending the conference. But mm. what's going to happen in, in Monash is Biota's own Jeffrey Ventrella will be there. I hope Peter Newman will be there. But also a wide variety of academics. There's been a real problem with the Artificial Life conferences recently because there haven't been many in the US. In fact, there have been next to none. And most of them are now in Europe or this Australian conference, which has really picked up momentum due to the lack of U.S. conferences. ACAL may be an interesting conference um, for, you know, if, if people are in the Brisbane area and they plan on travelling down, I mean, maybe you could start up a, a grey thumb to kind of get a, a road trip down to uh, to Melbourne or later, what, three days in a, a vehicle with a bunch of artificial life developers may completely turn you off the whole... Uh, I just took out cheap plane tickets, though. That's not that expensive. I, I, I checked out that conference... I think um, it would be a great conference to go to. I just um, current time timing and, and funds and all that sort of stuff. Certainly, but I mean the thing about Queensland is you know you have what four universities that all have either really strong robotics, engineering, computer science schools. I mean you really are in a in a perfect epicenter uh, for sure. a grey thumb. Definitely, um, I think um, I think. Uh, there would be a lot of people that would be interested. I've got I've got a handful of friends who have got multiple degrees and interested in, in that sort of thing, so they'd come along. So, Well, I mean, feel free to start it up just with your group of friends. I mean, this is the history with regards to Grayson in Boston, and if you start it up with a group of friends and start publicising it, I mean, even if it's just a chance to meet in a kind of public space and get together, you will notice that people will turn up. I mean, that's certainly been the, the case in the, in the Bay Area as well. I mean... Start it just with your group of friends in a public space that you announce, and then work sure. from there. I'll get onto it. It sounds great. 
Terrifically. Well, I'd like to thank you for, for calling in, and I really, I mean, in the future, please do call in. Bruce is going to be traveling for um, probably the next couple of months, but I do hope to have um, Steve Grand on shortly, and what I will do is announce when Steve is going to be on through the Evo Group mailing list as well as the Biota Conversations mailing list, because I think you and Steve could, uh, you know, bounce off a lot of ideas, and Steve, you know, in terms of kind of 20 years of artificial life and probably 10, 15 years' worth of robotics would be someone who, uh, who you'd probably have a great deal of fun talking with. Yeah, uh, that sounds great. Yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll check out his uh, research and, and stuff in the meantime. Yeah, it's pretty easy to find on Wikipedia and stuff, and he now, he's, he's gone into blogging and all this kind of stuff, so you'll see screenshots of the stuff that he's working on and also wherever he's wandering. He lives about five hours from me in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is quite ironic because he, he received an OBE from the Queen. He's probably the most kind of quintessential, you know, English gentle folk that you, you could imagine, yet he lives in, uh, well, he used to live in Louisiana, so he's kind of moving from the, the deep south through to uh, the wild west, but a very interesting fellow, and I think, I think you two would have a lot to jam about. Sure, that sounds great. So the next podcast on August 14th, Applied Uses of Artificial Life in Science and Industry, that may actually be the one we get Steve Grand on, um, so I'll try to organize that and Luke maybe I'll, I'll get you an email and get you back on the, the podcast specifically to to talk to Steve. Cheers. Uh, thanks Eve, Tom. <laughs>